0: morning, everybody. You probably weren't expecting this when you set to come out to church this morning, but I want to give you a bit of free legal and financial advice. If you haven't yet written a will, and particularly if you have children, then I would really urge you to do so as soon as possible, because you never know when you're going to die. And if you die without a will, then it is a nightmare for those who are left behind, trying to sort everything out. And I've been in that place of having to sort that out for other people, and it really is a nightmare. So if you haven't got a will, write one, get it sorted as soon as you can. Not long after we had Naomi, Claire and I wrote our will, and its, its official title is Our Last Will and Testament. It's a legal document which says what will happen to everything that we own, our vast estates, when we die. So if, if Claire is alive uh, when I die, she's still alive, then she gets everything and, and vice versa. But if we both die or, or if she's already died when, when I die, then Naomi and Daniel get to inherit everything I own. They will inherit my vast financial and property portfolio, my, my vast empire, which consists, by the way, of a 1970s three-bedroom terrace house in Kingston Park and a 17-year-old Honda Accord. That is it, I'm afraid. It's not particularly exciting, so Naomi, don't go out and spend any money based on that because there's not much to inherit. Not exactly a fortune, and nothing compared to the £650 million estate that the Queen left Prince Charles personally when she died. That was just his inheritance. When my mum's parents died, I inherited just over £5,000 which way back in 1985, when I was 13, was not an inconsiderable amount of money, certainly for a 13-year-old lad. And it was great. I got to have a few trips to America in my teens to go and stay with some friends out there. And then I was uh, able to use it, more importantly, to uh, use it for a deposit to buy my first flat. But the money soon went. It was only a a finite amount, and 5,000 pounds isn't actually that much money, and you soon spend it. Once it's gone, it's gone. The Bible teaches us that those who've put their faith and trust in Jesus have been promised to receive an eternal inheritance, and it's truly out of this world, even better than £650 million. God has promised us that he has something in store for us in the future. He's promised it to us, and when God promises something to us, that means that we know that it's definite and it's absolutely certain. God always keeps his promises, and it's eternal. And that means, unlike my inheritance, it won't be used up within a fairly short space of time. God's inheritance to us, if we've trusted in Jesus, will go on forever and forever. The promised eternal inheritance that will one day be received by all those who are trusting in Jesus is this. It's being with God forever. That is our inheritance, to be with God forever. God himself is our inheritance. Being with God, enjoying God forever, that is what we have to look forward to. That is our great inheritance. And we're working our way through the book of Hebrews here at Regent on Sunday mornings. And the main purpose really of the book of Hebrews was written to try and encourage Jewish Christians, Jews who turned to Jesus and were trusting in Jesus, they were kind of being pressured to go back to Judaism. And the whole kind of point really of the book is to say to them, you shouldn't do that because what you have in Jesus is so superior to everything you had as Jews, The writer repeatedly demonstrates and proves that Jesus and all that he is and all that he's accomplished is vastly superior to everything they had under the Jewish faith and the, the old covenant. The new covenant, the new relationship with God that Jesus has made possible through his death and through his resurrection is much better than the old covenant. The old relationship with God which was built on the Jewish law that God gave to Moses. And over the last few weeks, we've been seeing that as we've looked through Hebrews chapter 8 and and chapter 9. And today we're going to look at the second half of Hebrews chapter 9. And the passage we're looking at today talks about this amazing inheritance that God has promised us. For the people of Israel, the inheritance that they were looking forward to was the land of Israel. It was all kind of bound up in the land. And as, as good as that was, it's nothing in comparison to the amazing inheritance that those who trust in Jesus have. So if you've got a Bible with you, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to look at this and dig into it a little bit. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 to 28. I'm going to read it to you, but for the sake of context, we're just going to read from verse 11, just going to borrow some of the verses that Paul uh, spoke to us on last week. So Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to read from verse 11 right to the end of the chapter. This is what it says. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. In the case of a will, it's necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll on all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Verse 15 says for this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Jesus died on the cross as a substitute sacrifice as your substitute sacrifice and mine. And because he died and took the punishment for our sins, he's established a new covenant, a new agreement, a new arrangement between God and people that we can all be part of if we put our faith in Jesus. It's a new agreement between God and all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus, and they've been promised an eternal inheritance. It's an inheritance that won't run out after a few years. It's an inheritance that won't disappoint like my 17-year-old Honda. The Jewish law of the old covenant that God had entered into with the nation of Israel had condemned not just the people of Israel, but every single human being. And because everybody that has ever lived has failed to keep the laws and the rules and all the regulations of the old covenant, which summarized God's perfection, God's holy standards. But Jesus has died and has paid the ransom payment to set people free from the payment or from the penalty of those sins. Each one of us deserved God's wrath against our sin because each one of us has failed to meet God's perfect standards summarized in the law. And Jesus has died to deal with that. He's paid the ransom payment to set us free from the penalty of those sins so that we don't need to face God's wrath. And and just like my last will and testament will come into effect when I die, Jesus' last will and testament came into effect when he died. In verse 16, it says, in the case of a will, it's necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. And Jesus' last will and testament, if you like, is this, that all who trust in him should inherit everything that belongs to him. And at its heart, that means being with God and enjoying God forever that is our great inheritance that is the inheritance that Jesus has given for us God and being with God forever is our inheritance it's not just a case of being saved from God's wrath in hell although that's very much a part of what Jesus has done for us that's only a part of it it's actually about going to be with God forever enjoying God forever God is our inheritance. God is the gospel. God is the good news. Being with him and enjoying him forever, that is at the heart of what it means to become a Christian, to be saved, to be saved from God's wrath, yes, but to be brought into a place of enjoying his love and his uh, presence forever. The Bible talks about us being heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus. We even get to share in Jesus' glory, which is truly staggering and, and never ceases to amaze me. Paul says this in Romans 8, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Isn't that amazing? That through trusting in Jesus, we become God's children and joint heirs with Jesus so that we get to share in his amazing inheritance and in his glory in the future. But this amazing new covenant between God and people required Jesus' death to make it possible because God requires blood to be shed to deal with and forgive sins. The old covenant required blood to be shed to deal with sin and so does the new covenant because it's God's standard. God requires a sacrificial substitute to deal with sins. In the old covenant, it was the blood of animals that were substitute sacrifices, whereas in the new covenant, it's Jesus' blood. Jesus' blood was shed, and, and, and as he died in our place, as our substitute sacrifice, his blood was shed there on the cross. And when we read about in the Bible Jesus' blood or the blood of Christ, it's basically it's biblical shorthand for Jesus' sacrificial death, for his, his life poured out for us. So whenever we read about the blood of Jesus or the blood of Christ, basically it's a, it, it's a little phrase which summarizes and encapsulates the whole concept of Jesus sacrificially laying down his life for us there on the cross. God's perfect justice demands that when we sin, somebody must be punished. We deserve to be punished, but because God loves us and doesn't want to punish us, he punishes or he punished his one and only son instead, so that we don't need to be. Jesus shed his blood as he died in our place. Through dying for us, our sins can be forgiven if we put our faith and trust in Jesus. Verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But Jesus' blood has been shed. He has died in our place, and he's been punished for our sins, so we can be forgiven. Forgiveness is possible for us because of what Jesus has done, because Jesus was our perfect substitute sacrifice there on the cross. And, you know, this morning, if you have never trusted in Jesus and if you've never had your sins forgiven, and you know that you're a sinner, you know that you've messed up and you've screwed up, and you know that you've rejected God, then you can have all of your sins forgiven, not just some of them. You can have all of your sins forgiven, past, present, and even the sins of the future, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus. And you can take that step right now this morning if you want to. You just need to acknowledge before God, God, I am a sinner. I've lived my way instead of your way. And I'm sorry for my sins. Thank you, Jesus, that you died there in my place. And I choose now to surrender my life to you. And in the instant that you do that, God will wipe away all your sins, past, present, and future. And he will give you an amazing eternal relationship with himself, which includes this whole concept of eternal uh, inheritance, of being with God forever. When God established the old covenant with the people of Israel through Moses, the people committed themselves to keeping all God's commands. And you can read about that in, in Exodus 24. But the problem was that no sooner had they committed themselves to keeping God's commands than they broke them, and they broke them over and over and over again. Verse 19 says, When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. Moses had to take an unblemished animal and kill it and take its blood as a physical sign that it had died died in the place of the people and then apply that blood to the scroll which contained the law that he just written down from God as well as on the people themselves and then he had to to uh, sprinkle and apply that blood as a as a symbol as a as a pointer to the fact that somebody else had died for their sin on all of the things inside the tabernacle the tabernacle was the the portable tent if you like where the people of Israel worshiped God before they had the temple built here's a picture of what it would have looked like in the desert This was the the portable temple, the portable house of God, and it's where the people of Israel could engage with God in worship, and it was replaced 400 years later by by the actual temple. Here's a picture of what that would have looked like, and bits of that are still there in Jerusalem today. And the tabernacle and later the temple was where God's presence was most experienced on earth at that time, and it was where the people of Israel could meet with God and worship God and have their sins dealt with. But because of the people's sins, all the different ways that they broke the various laws and rules of the old covenant between God and and the people of Israel, everything needed sprinkling with blood inside this temple, inside the tabernacle. It was a symbolic way of showing that a substitute sacrifice had died in their place to take the punishment for all their sins. The blood was the visible symbol of that death, if you like, the death that they deserved. And the animal sacrifices that the Jewish priests had to make dealt with people's sins, not because they had any power in themselves, but because they pointed forward to a much greater sacrifice that would one day be made, which was the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The animal sacrifices could never really properly deal with sin. They were just animals. But they were a picture of Jesus, and they pointed forwards in time to when Jesus would die on the cross. And when their blood was shed... Their blood is a picture of that sacrificial, substitute, sacrificial death. That blood was then taken into the temple or into the tabernacle initially, and it was applied to all its furniture, the altars, the washing basin, the lampstand, and ultimately the Ark of the Covenant, which is where God's presence was most encountered. And, And the shed blood cleansed it from all of the contamination of the people of Israel because of all their sins. Because the blood was the symbol of the substitute sacrifice of the animal. The tabernacle at that point was the place on earth where God's presence was most fully experienced during that period of history. And it was a physical picture here on earth of a spiritual reality up in heaven. It was a picture of heaven itself, the Bible says. It was, the writer of Hebrews says, a copy of the heavenly things. In verse 23, he says, It was necessary then for these copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So the tabernacle and later the temple in Jerusalem was symbolically purified from the sin of the people by the blood of the substitute sacrifices of the animals killed by the priests. But what the writer calls the heavenly things, which is his way of referring to all of those who've put their faith and trust in Jesus And form what is known as the church, God's gathered people. All those throughout history who've trusted in Jesus, they are what's called the church. And they are who he's talking about here when he says the the heavenly things. Well, these heavenly things, these heavenly people, us, those of us who've trusted in Jesus, we needed a better sacrifice than the animals killed by the priest. Because animal sacrifices could never take away sins. They were just pointing forwards to Jesus. The tabernacle and later the temple in Jerusalem, were pictures of the true spiritual reality up in heaven, of God's people dwelling with God and enjoying his presence forever. And so if people were going to be able to actually live with God and be with him forever and enjoy his presence forever, in what we've already said is the promised eternal inheritance, then they were going to need a much better and a much more effective substitute sacrifice than the animals that the priests could put to death at the temple or the tabernacle. And that better sacrifice is, of course, none other than Jesus himself. All the animals that were ever put to death and had their blood symbolically applied to people would never be able to properly deal with sin. Our sin, your sin, my sin, And the sin of every other person that's ever lived needed something or or rather someone much greater and much more effective. We needed Jesus. And so Jesus came and lived the perfect life so that he could be the sinless substitute sacrifice who died in our place and was ultimately punished for your sin and my sin on the cross. And when he did that, he applied his blood or he applied what his blood symbolizes, which is his substitute sacrifice to those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, it's kind of like putting a plug into a socket. And then the power that the electricity is there flows into that person. When we put our faith in Jesus, we're kind of plugging into him and we're receiving all of that he's done and made possible by faith. Verse 24 says, for Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Jesus shed his blood for us, and he took the punishment for our sin in our place, but he didn't go into the temple, which was just a a man-made sanctuary, a copy of the true dwelling place of God, which was up in heaven. Jesus entered heaven itself, where God dwells, and acting as a priest on our behalf, he presented his own blood as a symbol of the sacrifice that he had made for each one of us. And he's there right now. Right now this morning, Jesus is in heaven in the true reality, in the spiritual reality, representing each one of us that have put our faith and trust in him. And he's there. He's representing us before God. He's acting as your advocate. He's acting as your representative. He's acting as your legal defense lawyer. He's acting there as a constant reminder to God that your sin has been dealt with. And that doesn't mean that we can just do what we like and and sin as we please, but it does mean that if and when we do sin, Jesus is there interceding on our behalf. He's there representing us. He's pleading our case. He's reminding God that we don't need to be punished because Jesus has already been punished on our behalf. The Apostle John wrote these words. He said, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ The righteous one he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins Now, this morning if you've trusted in Jesus whether that was a week or two ago or 30 40 years ago then no matter how badly you might have let God down or might be letting God down right now when God looks at you if you've trusted in Jesus he doesn't see your sin he sees Jesus and he says sin what sin I don't see any sin all I see is my wonderful son That's what God says if he looks at you this morning because Jesus is there representing you in heaven. He's representing you before God. And it doesn't matter. It does matter in one sense. Of course, sin always matters, but it doesn't matter in terms of our relationship with God how much we might have messed up and screwed up and fouled up. If we've put our faith and trust in Jesus, Jesus is there representing us. It's not an excuse to sin. We're not meant to sin. And because of the knowledge of what God is doing for us, of what Jesus is doing for us, that should mean that we should run away from sin and have nothing to do with sin. But if we do sin, and if and when we do sin, as John says here, then we need to confess that to God and turn away from it. But we can do that knowing that we're already forgiven because Jesus has dealt with our sin and he's representing us there right now in heaven. If you've messed up, if you've screwed up and you're staying away from God because you feel guilty, then you don't need to. Confess your sin to God. Claim the forgiveness that is already yours because Jesus is representing you right there, right now, in heaven, in God's presence. What Satan wants you to do is having messed up and screwed up is to stay away. And Jesus says, you don't need to stay away. Just come back to me. Come and welcome once more the embrace of my father who loves you and is able to accept you because of what I've done for you. Unlike the priests at the tabernacle and at the temple, Jesus doesn't need to keep going in and going back in and out of heaven over and over again. He doesn't need to be sacrificed again and again. Once was sufficient. His sacrifice was once for all time, never needed to be repeated. And it doesn't need to be added to it. It doesn't need to be uh, anything to be added to it in any way by anything that we can do. Verse 25 says, "'Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again "'the way the high priest enters the most holy place "'every year with blood that is not his own. "'Then Christ would have had to suffer many times "'since the creation of the world. "'But now he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages "'to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself.'" Jesus died once and for all. And when he died, he defeated sin, finally, completely. He cried out, "'It is finished.'" He's done away with sin by sacrificing himself. And when Jesus died, he dealt with sin once and for all, so that all who've put their faith and trust in him have had the penalty for their sin removed. They no longer, we no longer face God's wrath this morning if we put our trust in Jesus. And even the power of sin is broken in our lives according to the Bible. If we've trusted in Jesus, then sin no longer needs to have any power over us unless, of course, we choose to give it power. And the only time that sin has power over us is when we choose to allow sin to have that power. No Christian should be a defeated Christian ruled by sin because the power of sin, and the Bible makes this clear over and over again, the power of sin has been broken in our lives. Even if it doesn't feel like it. You might not feel much this morning like the power of sin is broken in your life, but the Bible says it's true. So we need to choose to believe what is true even if it doesn't feel like it. And if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, but you're struggling with ongoing sin, with sin confess, sin-confessed cycles, then please do come and chat with me afterwards. Not because I've got the solutions to that, but because Jesus has. Because I would love to chat with you further and help you by looking at what the Bible says about true freedom in Christ, the freedom that we already have, but sometimes we're not experiencing. In fact, we have a discipleship course that we use here at Regent called called Freedom in Christ. And lots of people here have worked through it and have found it really helpful and transformational to engage and really experience that freedom the Bible says we already have. Freedom not only from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin over our lives. So if you're really struggling with the power of sin in your life, then that might be something you might want to consider to help you really take hold of the freedom that Christ died to to bring into, into effect for you. Jesus died once for all, just as every single human being can only die once. In fact, as the writer says in verse 27, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. Human beings can only die once. There's no reincarnation. There's no second chances. And so Jesus, too, as a human being, God become a human being. Jesus, too, could only die once. But his one death was sufficient to take away your sin and to take away my sin. And we needed him to do that because after we die, as this verse tells us, we will all face God's judgment. We will all stand before God. Those who reject Jesus in this life and refuse to surrender their lives to him and put their faith and trust in him will find themselves in front of what the Bible calls the great white throne. Revelation 20 says there, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Those who find themselves in front of the great white throne with Jesus seated on it are those whose names are not in the book of life because they've rejected Jesus. And so they'll be judged by Jesus and thrown into what the Bible calls the lake of fire, which is a place of eternal punishment for sin and for rejecting God. But those who put their faith and trust in Jesus in this life, when Jesus comes again, will stand before what the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14 verse 10 and 12 says this, For we will all stand before God's judgment seat, so then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God if we're a believer in Jesus this morning, then we will stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for how we've lived since we've put our faith and trust in Jesus. And that should certainly make us think deeply and long and hard about, what, about how we're living and what we're doing for him in this life. But we won't be judged or punished for our sins because Jesus has already been punished for our sins and his blood has been shed for us. Our sins are gone and we are forgiven. In fact, as verse 28 says, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. If we've trusted in Jesus, then he's taken our sins away and he's removed them as far as the east is from the west. And when he comes again, he's going to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him, those who have put their faith and trust in him. Under the old covenant, once a year on what was called the day of atonement, the high priest would appear at the the tabernacle or the temple and he would sacrifice an animal and he would take its shed blood as a symbol of its substitutionary sacrificial work. He would take that blood into the most holy place where God's presence was most experienced. And then if God accepted that sacrifice, the priest would reappear and the people of Israel could celebrate because they would then know that their sins had been dealt with for another year. People would be waiting, anticipating for the priest to come back and reappear a second time. And like everything else with the tabernacle, this was a picture of what Jesus would eventually do because his first appearance was not to offer an animal, but to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins there on the cross. And then he'll come back out of heaven, the true reality of where God's presence is, where he's been for the last 2,000 years, representing us before God and preparing us a place to spend eternity. And he will appear a second time. And he will bring salvation to those of us who are waiting for him. And when we see him, we will celebrate because we will see him face to face. And then finally, we will experience the fullness of the great salvation that Jesus has achieved for us will finally receive that promised eternal inheritance, which is being with God and enjoying God forever. Revelation 21 gives us a little glimpse of what that will be like. This is what it says, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or pain for the old order of things has passed away. God and dwelling with God is our great inheritance. We'll be with him forever and all because of what Jesus has done for us there on the cross in shedding his blood. What a phenomenal inheritance. It's difficult to really understand, difficult to really take in, and until we see it, until we experience it, we'll never truly grasp the the, the phenomenal aspect, phenomenal nature of this great inheritance. Better than my 17-year-old Honda, that's for sure. Better than my house. Better than 5,000 pounds. Better even than 650 million. This is a promised inter- inheritance, an eternal inheritance that goes on forever. An inheritance that has God right at its heart. An inheritance that has being with God and enjoying God forever right at its heart. Let's just take a few moments to pause and reflect. Maybe you want to, if you're comfortable doing that, just close your eyes. And in this moment, let, let's just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Maybe this morning you've never experienced, you've never uh, given your life to Jesus, you haven't experienced the forgiveness that is on offer to you this morning because of what he did for you. Now will be a wonderful time. The Bible says now is the day of salvation. Now will be a wonderful time to take that step and put your faith in Jesus. Maybe you've wandered and you've messed up. You might have messed up really badly. Now's a great time just to come back to, come back to Jesus and thank him for being there representing you. And once again, we receive the embrace of a loving Father. We've got a great inheritance awaiting us, being with God forever. One day we'll see Jesus face to face, and he'll wipe away every tear, every bit of pain, death will be gone, sin will be gone, because we'll be with God forever. What a great inheritance. Father, we worship you this morning. Thank you for sending Jesus to be our substitute sacrifice. Lord Jesus, thank you that you willingly gave up your life for us on the cross. and Thank you that right now you're in heaven representing us. Father, I pray for anybody this morning that doesn't know you, that right now they would put their trust in you. For those who've wandered from you, I pray that they would re-engage with you, reconnect. And for each one of us, Lord, may we just be thrilled with the the great thought of the wonderful inheritance, our great inheritance that awaits us. So we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. We worship you together in Jesus' name, amen.